All right, so one of the uh, funnier, but then also more annoying aspects of this time of year is not necessarily just like the hustle and bustle, and it's not necessarily um, individuals trying to, you know, kind of bombard you with, um, you know, tons of things to schedule and, and, and family activities and all that. But one of the things that to me has always been like the quirkiest is kind of this rise of um, people who know a little bit of information and they think they know a lot of information. There is this, um, uh, there's this effect and I think it's called the, um, it's called the Dennis Kruger effect, the something Kruger effect. But what it is, is it's this whole idea that if somebody knows nothing about a subject, then they feel like they know nothing. If somebody knows everything about a subject, they tend to understand that like, wow, there's a whole lot to this one thing and I feel like I don't know a whole lot. So there's like a degree of humility there. But when you give somebody a little bit of information, all of a sudden they get way overly confident in how much they actually know. And this is an actual thing. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but it's an, it's an actual thing. At, at, during my day job, we actually reference it pretty, pretty regularly that <clears throat> individuals who have the hardest opinions on things so often are people who they have those hard opinions because they know a little bit of information and they assume they know a lot of information. Well, with Christmas, it's the same way where we become a more affluent society. People have access to more information. Because of that, <clears throat> you have people who think they know an awful lot about things that uh, involve uh, Christians and that involve Christian celebrations and Christian holidays and everything. So you see this rise of anything around Christmas and Easter, but especially Christmas, that people turning around and saying, well, you know that Christmas is based on a pagan holiday, right? You know, and you see this both outside the church and you see it inside the church. People outside the church using it to kind of discredit that like, oh, well, you're celebrating something that's not even really yours. You're just kind of borrowing things from other people. But then you see other individuals that are sometimes inside the church that are very, very, very kind of fundamentalist about things who will say, you know what, I don't even like this because this, this is a pagan holiday and you shouldn't celebrate this. There's entire denominations that their denominational belief is that I won't celebrate these holidays because of very much these types of things. But in reality, that argument starts ringing a little bit hollow when you start looking at the fact that culture, by definition, is based on a long legacy of many, many, many different things. Anybody who tries to say, well, you know, it's wrong, it's sinful for you actually to be a Christian and for you to celebrate any type of holiday that may have any inkling of a basis of some kind of pagan aspect of it, I always look at it and say, do you use the standard calendar? Do you call it Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? If you do that, congratulations, you do a pagan practice. Because I don't know if you know what Sunday is, <laughs> but it's about the sun. There's, there's, you know, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. These are all actually named, believe it or not, after uh, Indo-European pagan gods. So each day was the day dedicated to that pagan god. And these are just names that we've appropriated and used because... Got to have a way to refer to time, right? And so much in the same way, people who try to get that crazy about uh, Christian beliefs, it, it's something where, you know, you got to look at it and say like, well, where are you going to draw the line? You know, because at some point in time, you're entirely reinventing every facet of your life. And I don't mean that in like a spiritual theological way. I mean that like a very practical way. You're literally recreating language because you don't want to have any inkling of pagan anything. So what do we end up hearing? Well, there's a few different things we end up hearing people say. You know, one of them is that, like, it's a pagan holiday. I mean, look, we got these trees, right? You know, I made a joke, I think, last week where I said, like, it's my favorite pagan symbol, you know? 
And, you know, we had these things that, <clears throat> sure, there are a lot of cultures that worship trees and all that. comes out of Germany, with, with which they're forests and everything. It's always been a part of, uh, uh, you know, kind of their, their, um, yeah, kind of their ethos, you know, as a, as a people. Um, but, you know, it's something that we have turned into a purely cultural thing with very little Christian significance whatsoever. Uh, besides really dumb posts you'll see on social media where people try to, like, pretend there was some kind of altruistic Christian meaning of this thing. And there's not. It's just a fun thing we do because we're, we're, we're a mutt nation of European traditions. And so we have trees, right? I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. There's nothing more to it. Don't ever think it. I've also heard people say that, you know, Christmas is actually based on the uh, Roman celebration of Saturnalia. And you may or may not know this, but I really like Greek and Roman history. And, you know, that's kind of a silly thing is, yes, there was a holiday around this time of year that was called Saturnalia. But you know when that holiday did not happen? December 25th. So if they were going to use the holiday, you would think they would just do it on the day of Saturnalia. It's not that. You know, same thing exists with people saying it's the winter solstice. Well, you know, it's a celebration of the winter solstice and everything. Well, why not just make it on the winter solstice? Why not just do that? So the thing is, is that we, we, we start looking at these people who want to say that, you know, there's something secular about this holiday and therefore we should rebel against it. And, you know, you kind of want to say, uh, remember this phrase, correlation is not causation. Just because things happen at around the same time or there may be some cultural connections doesn't mean one is based on the other. And the reason why I point this out is because there are different reasons why Christmas is actually based on when it's based. Um, you know, one of the things that we end up reading in the Bible kind of gives us little hints. You know, this is kind of what scholars do, right? You know, they look at hints from Scripture, and then they look at history, and they try to piece it together, right? So we end up seeing this in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is talking about the beginning of Christ's ministry. So the beginning of his ministry, we see Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Traconius, uh, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word of John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Uh, he went into the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You're seeing here the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, right? And you have a lot of very good historical markers there that say during the reign of this person, during the reign of that person, when this individual was doing that. And all those things start giving us an idea of the fact that Jesus was probably born anywhere basically no later than 1 B.C., so it's kind of one of these things where we don't know exactly what year he was born, but definitely not at zero. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he was born somewhere probably between six, uh, 6 and 2 BC. And uh, some individuals actually think that he may have actually been born in spring. And the reason why they base that is because kind of the tradition was that you would get married and whatnot uh, sometime around fall because that's when the harvest was. So you could actually have banquets and things like that. And then you would end up, uh, you know, it, it, yes, you know the story, like they got married and then, you know, they kind of already like, oh, there's going to be a baby. And so that would put Jesus somewhere uh, being a springtime baby. The only reason why we celebrate it, December 25th, is basically because some historian in the third century, so this is like 200 and something, right? The year 200 and something, uh, popped up and 
got, got the idea based on various texts and stuff like that, that, uh, well, we believe that uh, Jesus was conceived. I don't know how you know that, but that's, uh, thus is how Christian tradition is based. Like, you know, we think that uh, Jesus was conceived sometime in the spring, and then he just went 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and he arrived at December 25th. That's literally it. And if you go over to Israel today, you will actually find many Christian areas where people go, this is the spot where Jesus was crucified. You know, you, you have, you, you have, this is the spot where this thing happened. And, you know, the, the, the tour guides and whatnot will even tell you and say there's a difference between the traditional spot of this and the actual supposed side of this. There's a reason why you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where the Christian tradition is this is where Christ was crucified and was, you know, buried in a tomb somewhere on the same grounds and everything. But then you go to where basically the Protestants go to and they go, well, the Bible says he was outside the city. There's the walls of the city and the church only subcurs inside of it. You make your own decision. This is where we think it happened. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of traditions. And I guess what I'm trying to do here is draw a distinction between what you believe, what your actual faith is based on, and the traditions of men. Sometimes our traditions are based on things that are perfectly harmless. The whole like all things are, are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Sometimes things are just based on the fact that like that's kind of the history of our people as a people. You know, this is the history of our society. I mean, you know, individual like local societies have, have little traditions and everything. I think about the fact that now for the past several, several years, you know what? I kind of look forward to the fact that Town of Bowling Green has a tree out there that looks like a big gumdrop. And, you know, I think about that thing every single time they put it up. And I'm like, that's the, that's the gumdrop tree. They could have chose a Christmas tree, but they chose a gumdrop tree shaped tree. And I think that's a bold choice. But, like, I look forward to it because it's our tradition, right? There's no theological significance to it. And it's important to understand that so many things within even our own practice of religion are actually just as trivial. There are things that can have great meaning when we heap that meaning onto it and when we understand that we're just using that traditional practice as something that we can latch onto, but it in and of itself is a human tradition. And this is something that you see Christ warning against when he looked at the individuals that were the learned religious people of his time, you look at what he was pushing against and it wasn't just hypocrisy in terms of, you know, oh, you say you shouldn't lie and then you go around and lie. But you look at the fact that he cues in on the fact that you've created all this like human-based religious tradition and heaped it on to the law of Moses and heaped it on to what God has told his people. But then you've started saying that that stuff that men created is more important or overshadows the stuff that God put down. This is something as Christians today, we run into the exact same thing. And I can guarantee you that no one denomination has a monopoly on that at all because you see it just as much in evangelical churches as you do in traditional liturgical churches. It's just different. It's just that the liturgical ones, all of the man-made stuff is like 200, 300, 400 years old. And you go to this other one and it's like there's people alive in the church today that remember when that tradition was built. But heaven forbid you try to move on past it. So, I mean, this thing exists in all Christian organizations. Just look at Mark 7, verses 1 through 8. So if you look at the very beginning of Mark 7, <clears throat> you can see an example of Jesus going off on this effect. Verse 1, it says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed, hands. And that's kind of an interesting, that's an interesting thing. It says unclean, and then it, it even... 
it even specifies that is unwashed to distinguish the difference between what God has declared unclean and like the Levitical law and like what God gave to his people versus the way that over centuries man had interpreted it to say, okay, well now we're going to have all these additional laws on it to make certain that you're clean. So it's an important thing. The disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. It's important. It's a tradition of the elders, not like a directive that God gave or an ordinance. Verse 4, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and kept like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He, Christ, answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship in vain, teaching as doctrine human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. This right here is something that should somewhere, it should almost be like a required inaugural Bible study for anybody entering into church leadership right here. Because one of the things that I know, and we fall into it as well as as a church in our own little tiny ways, but... <clears throat> you know, when when we began planting this church, one of those uh, phrases that was used pretty frequently was, everything needs to be willing to be put on the chopping block. There's the stuff that God has told us to do. There's the what, what God has told us through his scriptures, what he's communicated through his disciples, and we have that. Everything else we need to be willing to reconsider. So if it's a form, if it's a ceremony, if it's a, if it's a, a practice, you know, it's not to say all that is bad. I love me some good old religion. I really, really, really love it. But all that stuff we should be willing to sacrifice because ultimately it is human tradition. And so often what ends up happening are people end up clinging to the human tradition over what's actually in the scriptures. I think there is great value. Obviously, I talk about history all the time. I think there's great value in listening to the different theologians out there, the different early church patriarchs, you know, looking at all these things. I think there's value in looking at things that, you know, maybe are kind of even, uh, I guess you would say, like church adjacent, you know, things that are religious writings around that. You think about like historical writings of uh, uh, Josephus that, that was, uh, you know, writing about history at the time that Christ was around. And there's even a lot of things in there you can take out of that. But you have to be careful to look at this and go like, but... This isn't God talking. These may be God-inspired. And even when you look at the way that these these traditions were, were being explained in this block of Scripture from Mark, you end up seeing some things that, were, that are very significant. When it talks about these uh, customs and traditions, it talks about these customs and traditions in verse 4 that says uh, that they received and kept. So in other words, something may have been created with a perfectly noble cause and purpose, and that's one of the reasons, too, why as Christians we have to be very careful not to look at the human traditions of another Christian and say that's different and therefore it is wrong. Because just because somebody has a tradition doesn't mean it's inherently bad. So long as they're understanding that there is something under that tradition, it can be beautiful. 
I mean, when I sit here and I think about, you know, uh, Protestants love talking about Catholics, right? But, you know, I think about even my, my upbringing, you know, coming up in like a Lutheran church and, you know, having ever you know, visited frequently like the Episcopal church and all that. But, you know, you go and you see the old ceremonies and the old forms and it's just beautiful, the whole thing. And you can easily walk away from that beauty and say, I feel like I'm very holy, much in the same way that you can walk away from a big whiz-bang concert-style worship service and feel like you're very holy. But if you're finding your salvation in those forms and ceremonies, that's what becomes the problem. So it's not the form and the ceremony in and of itself. It's what ends up happening. So as individuals that are church leaders or Bible study leaders or worship leaders or whatever, the importance from our perspective is that we have to make certain that we are facilitating individuals to be able to see the God that is behind what our human ceremonies are. Once again, we have to be willing to separate the earth of the thing from the heaven of the thing and make certain that people can see the heaven of the thing because that's what's actually going to sustain them through the bad times in their life. And that's what's actually going to help them through the seasons of doubt. But as everyday individuals, we can't get sucked into that trend. So often I ended up saying, and I am dead convinced that it is the exact reason why you see so many youth-aged individuals going off to youth programs and summer camps and things like that, but then yet the statistics are just absolutely abysmal when it comes to how many of them take that momentum and continue carrying it on. You have some great success stories out there, but ironically, the best success stories I can think of are people who, to be honest with you, weren't even that into youth group. But there were people who at home, their parents carefully made sure to ingrain in them the fact that, like, we're going to do youth group, we're going to do church, but there's something underneath it that you're going to learn. And because they understood the heaven of the thing, they stuck with it. It's one of the greatest disservices as a church that we do is focusing so much on the earth of the thing and then forgetting to point people to what's just behind it. So there's a reason why... This is important to bring up around Christmas. Obviously, a lot of forms and ceremonies, a lot of very beautiful things. But before we dive into the hardcore Christmas stuff, what I would want to do is kind of stop for a moment and think about a different holiday. And that is Hanukkah. So there's a reason why I talk about Hanukkah and everything. Uh, this is menorah that is in our house, and it's, it's super cheap, and it's missing a bunch of its little things, so it's, it's been well-loved. Um, but uh, I thought about getting one in Israel, but then when I looked on the back, you could see a bunch of stickers on the ones in Israel that said, like, made in China and stuff. And I went, well, I'll just go to Target if I'm going to do that. Uh, the import will be a lot cheaper. So <clears throat> there we go. That's my, little, that's my little menorah and everything. So you might ask yourself, Joseph, well, why, do you, why, do you, why do you own a menorah? And also, why does it look so well used is probably the better question. So um, there's a reason for this, and it's because... Hanukkah actually teaches a very, very, very important lesson when it comes to all this stuff that we're talking about right now. And it really cuts down to the core of religion that is based on human tradition versus something that is actually trying to seek the heart of God. So we're not going to sit here and go and read from the Apocrypha, but if you want to read like the actual story of Hanukkah, there's kind of just like I was talking about with legend and tradition and all that. There is what is written about Hanukkah, which kind of ties in pretty darn close with what we kind of archaeologically know happened. And then there is like the legend, which was actually created sometime after the events that we celebrate in Hanukkah. So, uh, and the legend is what this little guy is based on. So, uh, 
First, I want to set the stage for the state of mind of a lot of uh, convicted individuals at this point in time. And so when you sit here and you look at the Bible chronologically, what you know is that Malachi happens before the New Testament, right? But there's like 400 years in there, so there's a lot of time. But yet, it is the best window that we have into some of the rhetoric and the ethos and everything. It's not too far, that's not too crazy if you think about it. Because in reality, if I pull up some of our favorite Protestant theologians that we will still read today, that people will still read as if it is a modern piece of work, a lot of them are individuals who lived in the 18th century. You know, you, you have people who are much older than that. You have John Calvin that people talk about. I know you like John Calvin. Um, but you know, you have like John Calvin and you have the Wesleyans and you have, uh, you know, other individuals that are more modern They you have Spurgeon and stuff like that. And these individuals are basically about as far removed from us as the events of Hanukkah are from Malachi. So that should give you an idea that this isn't, you know, it's a couple hundred years later, but it's not, this mindset's still about the same. But if you go to Malachi chapter three, you kind of get a good view into the, the mindset of an individual who is deeply convicted about what individuals who serve God are doing. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you see this. Malachi, uh, God through Malachi says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord will seek, <clears throat> the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and the launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. There's a lot of things in there that you can see about individuals longing for this desire to get back to the heart of what it means to follow Christ. You know, things in here that when you understand kind of the, you know, the, the, the biblical context are important. Where it says uh, right there, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Remember, the sons of Levi are individuals that are like the deacons. I mean, they're the individuals that are the, the elders, the people assisting the priests in the duties of the temple. So right here, he's not talking about like, oh, Joe Schmo out on the street and saying like, he needs to be more righteous. He's talking about the religious people and saying the religious people have gotten out of order. And because of this, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, stating that this is going to be rectified and these individuals will be purified and I will see my name honored among the nations. Malachi is steeped in all of this. And so it's important to understand this when you look at the history of what occurs in the story of Hanukkah. So here's the actual facts of the story. The facts of the story is that you had a Syrian, Syrian king. And when I say Syrian king, you have to keep in mind, these are in the days following Alexander the Great. And basically the entire known world, as we kind of study it today, was essentially run by the generals uh, and the families of the generals of Alexander the Great, which is where we get this word Hellenized, that there was this Hellenistic um, flavor to everything that goes on basically all across the world. It's why you do see a lot of very similar things, you know, in terms of like 
ideas and philosophies and things like that all the way from Greece all the way down to Egypt and then all the way out going out past Persia you know modern day Iran and even out in Afghanistan there's some similarities in there and it's because of this one dude who was like I'm gonna rule the world and then he kind of did so what happens is after he dies you have all of these individuals that are uh, his generals who didn't know who was supposed to be in charge so they all fought and they claimed different areas the ones that were left in Syria was this, uh, was, was this family that led to an individual named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so Antiochus is this individual that ends up saying like, you know what, I'm going to go. And, you know, they're still trying to jockey for power, right? Because this is, in their minds, this is, this is the Macedonian Empire. And so they're going to go retake areas. They're constantly fighting. So they go down to take Jerusalem, and they do, and they take the temple, and they dedicate the temple to Zeus. And so think about the mindset that we just read in Malachi. And now these individuals, some of these individuals are seeing this foreign pagan nation coming in, taking the temple, the holiest place, and then dedicating it to a Greek god. This is absolutely detestable. And so because of that, you end up having a group that is a priestly family that stands up that says, we're going to revolt. And these individuals were the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans go by a different name sometimes that we know a little bit better, which is the Maccabees. So if you go to a, one of the versions of the Bible that has the section called the Apocrypha, you know, a bunch of things that aren't really in there, but they're thought to kind of like, you know, you look at the definition of the meaning uh, apocryphal. It's kind of like eh, these stories, we don't know if these actually happen, so we're not going to include them in the Bible. But they kind of go with the kind of the general themes of the Bible. So you know, there's some things you can learn from it. You go in there, you can see First and Second Maccabees or two different books in there. And it kind of goes over all this. But the Maccabees revolted and they ended up actually winning an independent Jewish Israel for about 50 years until the Romans came in and made them a client state. So that's basically the history. Now, what happens is added on to that history, there was a legend that was put into what the Jews call the Talmud. And the Talmud, if you want to think of it this way, is kind of a bunch of like pontification. It's, it's kind of hard for us to understand because we're used to looking at the Bible and going, oh, that's the Bible, and that's what it is, and it's nothing else, and it's the Bible. We're used to thinking about that, but you got to keep in mind, the Jews who went through a lot of periods of like random scrolls laying around and stuff, there's the scripture, there's the Torah, and then there's the Talmud, which is a bunch of very smart, we would think of them as like early church patriarchs and saints and things like that, all writing things that they say, I think this, this is my interpretation and all that. And this is actually where that tradition of taking like saints and whatnot and kind of revering their works very high. This is, this is kind of where you start seeing some of the beginnings of that is in the Talmud. So the Talmud has some things that, um, the way I heard somebody put it is like, could be true, take it with a very large grain of salt because there's also some wild stuff in there. But the legend, which leads to this guy, comes out of the Talmud. And what you end up having in here is that the Maccabees retook the temple and they ended up going up to this one menorah that was the uh, Nertamid. And the Nertamid was um, basically like this one menorah that sat where the Ark is, you know, where, you know, long time ago when the Ark of the Covenant was still around, would have been by the Ark of the Covenant, it would have illuminated where the Ark is. And this, was, this is the eternal flame. It's kind of supposed to represent the light of God. And so they went in and they came in to sanctify the temple again. But when they did that, they saw that there was only one jar of oil 
uh, to light it, and in order to send a runner out to get more oil, it would take eight days. And so the miracle of Hanukkah is that the one jar ended up lasting for eight days, and so the runner came back with all the oil, and that's why you end up having the whole, like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's why you end up having the eight. That's, that is the story of Hanukkah. But there's a reason why I bring this up, because you look at this, and again, you go, all very interesting, or maybe you're not, you're humoring me, and either way, thank you. So, um, but what's the real moral here? Well, when you end up looking at the story of Hanukkah, you end up seeing that it is the celebration of individuals who wanted to retake the sincerity of their faith, who were not willing to allow what their beliefs were to be watered down and to be something that was diluted by the Hellenistic forces around them. So instead, they took physical action in order to retake the sincerity of what they thought it meant to be Jewish, what they thought honored God. It was unacceptable. But so in a sense, it ends up actually being a rebellion against secular ideas getting into their faith, which is funny because what is Hanukkah in practice? It's Jewish Christmas. And so you end up looking and saying it's ironic that a holiday that was started so that individuals could say, I want to have a sincere faith, has become the most secularized Jewish holiday on the calendar. But yet you look at these lessons that we can learn from Hanukkah and you say there's absolutely something there that, that uh, clearly resonates very, very strongly with Christians. And what are those things? So really briefly, I have three things, uh, as any good pastor has three things. I have three things that when you look at Hanukkah, you can take away from this time. Whether you go to Target and get yourself a random holy relic or not, um, you know, you can at least look at this and reflect on it and say, like, there's absolutely something in here for Christ to convict me. <coughs> the first thing is this, something that we read in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. <clears throat> when you look at this story and legend of Hanukkah, you can see individuals that were physically intruded by the world around them. And in a lot of ways, we are metaphorically intruded on by the world, and in some ways we are physically intruded on by the world. There are certain things that it would be awesome if we didn't have to worry about that we were forced to deal with. Life is it forces all kinds of situations on us where we, we look around at all the different actions we could take and we say, I don't see what the correct action is. And the reality is because, yeah, it's because sin introduced decay into this world. And sometimes that leaves you in situations where there's not a perfectly holy, uh, righteous one answer of how you should respond. Because the, the sin already done occurred into the situation. So we have to look at these situations that pop up in our lives and do our best to not be conformed by the, the circumstances of the world. We have to not be influenced by what other people tell us we need to be doing or we need to not be doing. And instead, we need to keep that singular purpose of mind, understanding what God has called us to do. Do not be conformed by this world. 
The second thing that we end up saying this is be genuine in your practice of faith. Exactly what we read that Christ said to the Pharisees. You want to ensure that what you are doing, your sense of religion is something that is holy and is something that is pure and that is true and is something that you are able to focus on the, the heaven of it behind the, the earth of it. <clears throat> in James chapter 1, verse 27, a verse that I go to a lot. It's pure and undefiled religion before God. The Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When you look at that, you don't see a whole lot in those few words that say that pure and undefiled religion is you have stained glass windows and that you have the proper type of syntax to your service or that you have a line item in your budget for flowers for homecoming or like whatever silly thing it is that you know you, you, you people might think is like an essential part of church is that pure and undefiled religion is the heart is the heart that drives us towards looking after orphans and widows in the distress and to keep keep oneself unstained from the world, not being conformed. So our religion that comes out of that refusal to be conformed is pure religion. Everything else is gravy. Everything else that we do, this, this, that, it, everything else is just to help us connect with this granted, sometimes kind of hard to understand thing called God. The third thing is that we have to have confidence in God's faithfulness to equip us to do his will. When you even look at the legend that goes along from the Talmud of Hanukkah, it is a legend that surrounds the fact that individuals who looked and said the physical circumstances of the situation do not allow for us to be able to consecrate the temple and the Holy of Holies the way we feel like it needs to happen. But the way that the legend goes they said, but this is what God has called us to do. We are convicted by our desire to reconsecrate our faith, to execute what we see as pure and undefiled religion. And in doing that, what you see in the legend of Hanukkah is God's faithfulness. But too, in the same way, you can see example after example after example of God sustaining his people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Something that Paul communicates in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4-6 through 6 is this. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives. We end up seeing from what we know in the New Testament, what we see through individuals that we have no problem acknowledging are part of our faith, that God will equip us to do what he has called us to do. If God didn't equip us, if God didn't call us to do that, because God's not going to fail. So God's not going to send you on a task or put you in a situation where he wants you to do a thing and not make certain that you can go do that thing. Now, and be careful that what I did not just say is that God's never going to put you in a situation you can't overcome. Because you know what? Sometimes it happens all the time. That's because God didn't call you to overcome that situation. Sometimes he wants us to walk through the valley. But... When God has called us to do a thing, he will equip us. It is the confidence that we have. And it's one of those reasons why when we sit here and we contemplate our relationship and our responsibility to one another, our responsibility to do what God has called us to do, we can't allow our own self-doubts to be the thing that holds us back. We have to allow God to be the person to say go, and we have to allow God to be the person to say stop. 
The reality is that if God wants us to go and he wants us to stop, we don't really have a choice. But in our hearts, we have to be willing to make that step to say, I, I, I am willing and I am desiring to, to, to see what you can do to make me follow what you've called me to do. We have to be willing to humble ourselves, even humbling our confidence, humbling our security so that we can do what God has called us to do, even if it seems improbable from our own earthly perspective. But in doing all this, and what I'll wrap up with is this. There is a historical warning here. As we sit here and we think about trying to be the individuals that the Bible has called us to be, it can be very, very, very easy, and you see it happen frequently with some of our most passionate believers in our Christian family, where they end up looking at the scriptures and they want with such fervency and such zeal, they want to live out and be the, the, the Christian of the real Bible and, and the, the Christian of you know what, what's really called to and the Christian of prophecy and the Christian of conviction and morals and mission. They want to be that real person. And in doing that, you know what? They are hearkening exactly into what the Maccabees were doing, saying, no, we don't want any compromise. We want to do this right. We want to make sure that we are honoring God. And you know who the Maccabees turned into? They became the Pharisees. So when you look at things historically, the Maccabees, these individuals that dedicated and risked their lives to reconsecrate that which the world had tried to defy, those individuals quickly fell into being the exact people that Christ would later on look at and point at and say, you hypocrites. So the warning in here is that as we sit here and we look at our own lives, maybe even as we look at other people celebrating other religions out there during this time of year, we should stop and we should ask ourselves if we are seeing truly the heaven behind the thing. We should convict ourselves to try to pursue what is not a worldly tradition of faith, but do what God has actually called us to do. But in doing that, we have to be ever vigilant and we have to be cautious to never start thinking ourselves more important than we are. To understand that we are serving God just as any other servant is serving God. None of us is more important than the other. And in doing that, we can prevent falling into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into and start interpreting that our way of being called or that our feeling of how God has called us is the inherently correct way for all people because we are not God. And we do not know God's calling and convictions on other people's hearts. So as we sit here and we go into this Christmas season, let's enjoy our stupid trees. Let's do our candles and we'll read the things and we'll go do all the stuff and let's enjoy it. It's a great time. It's my favorite holiday season on the calendar. But do it and understand what's really behind it. And when somebody else has a different practice, maybe just enjoy it. Maybe you'll see what God has called them to and I don't know, maybe there's something in it that you'll be able to take away even though it's not your tradition that you say that helped me connect to my Savior just a little bit more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity and we thank you for we thank you for this season and for all the reminders that you give us about themes like faith and hope and love and joy and charity and, and generosity. And we just pray that we would be able to go through this season and see it as more than just themes and more than just uh, neat little stories and anecdotes, but instead would be something that helps us to connect to you at a truly deeper level. Help us to be individuals that are that are deeply convicted and are deeply moved 
to be reflections of who you have called us to be and not just who we have interpreted that we're called to be. Help us to have that sense of humility, but that in that humility, help us to be confident and to sustain us so that even when we think we can't, we know that you can. We pray all these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.